Blog Talk Radio. Bringing you excellent entertainment from the king of DC media. Here's the Inside Acting Radio Show. And now, here's your host, William Powell. King of DC Media. Good evening, welcome to the Inside Acting Radio Show. I'm your gracious host, William Powell. Tonight, my guests are Roz Mike and Teresa Costracani, stars of the new musical Black Pearl Sings, which is about a folk singer from Depression Era, Texas, and a musicologist. I saw it and it was spectacular. It runs through May 29th. For tickets, call 703. 703- Five four eight nine zero four four, or navigate to www.metrostage.org. And thanks to Carolyn Griffin, producing artistic director, for setting this up. So I see they're on the line, but first let's hear a quick word from our sponsor. Looking for a great show to see this spring? Look no further than Assassins at Laurel Mill Playhouse. Directed by Michael B. Hartsfield and produced by Maureen Rogers, Assassins lays bare the lives of nine individuals who assassinated or tried to assassinate the President of the United States in a one-act historical revusical. Performances run weekends from Friday, April 29, 2016, through Sunday, May 22, with Friday and Saturday evening performances at 8 p.m., Purchase tickets by going to www.laurelmillplayhouse.org. For more information, call 301-617-9906 and press 2, or you can contact Maureen Rogers. All right, so I see uh, Roz and Teresa are on the line, so let me bring them on in. Good evening. Hi, William. This is Teresa. Hi there. Hi, it's Roz. Hi. All right. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Roz, I know that you really love this role. So why did you want to play Pearl so much? Um, You know, it's interesting. I saw the play in Philly with a very good friend of mine playing the role of Black Pearl, and I fell in love with the play, the story, and I kind of, you know, put it on the back burner, but um, I spoke to Carolyn Griffin over at Metro Stage. I've been there since 2002, actually, and off and on for about 10 seasons and, you know, suggested the play to her, and she loved it, and here we are today. I mean, I, just, I think it's just a really great story. It's a wonderful journey, and I had to do it, so here we are. All right, Teresa, so what uh, drew you to the role? Well, I have um, not that long ago come back to my acting career after taking a break from having babies. And as I was looking around for audition opportunities, it came to me that that I really wanted to do a little more singing this time around than I had previously. And so I had my eyes open for that kind of thing. And when I saw uh, the audition listing at Metro Stage, I thought, um, this looks like a really sweet little plum. And then as I I learned more about it, I was really drawn to the fact that it's – it's only two women, and, and it's a, the story of their relationship and, and about their desires and their, what they're hoping for and trying to achieve. And I just really, really am drawn to that. 
at this time in my life. You know, I was I did I wasn't looking for something about um, you know, romance or anything like that. I just love that it's about two grown women who who are negotiating their relationship together. Yeah, so Teresa, uh, I was wondering, did you do any research on musicologists at the the Library of Congress? I mean, what kind of of research did you do in that area? Well, I, I, to be honest, I didn't do a lot. I did do some reading about John Lomax, who was the musicologist that this story is based on, um, and he is the person who who went around to prisons in the South and uh, looking for songs to record for the Library of Congress and who discovered the musician Lead Belly while he was doing that. And they they did go on to have a lifelong friendship and did some recording and some touring together and things like that. I thought that was pretty fascinating. Um, and the playwright has taken that story and sort of uh, transmuted it to be about two women. And so once I had that general backstory, I... Um, I'd like to work mostly from the from what's on the page, but um, but I think it's a fascinating story, and we learned a little bit about the the technology that would have been used, the wax discs that she, that she would have had to carry around, and um, this giant 300 pound machine that she would have had in the probably in the trunk of her car and things like that, so that she could record the music. So it, it's a pretty fascinating time period and a pretty fascinating um, task that John Lomax set himself to, and that therefore my character in the play is also pursuing. Roz, I'm going to go back to you. Uh, did you have to uh, consult with a dialect coach? I did not. Um, my grandmother, well, my great-grandmother, really, um, Willie Mae Best, uh, took me to South Carolina every summer until I was about 11 years old, 10, 10 or 11 years old. And so um, my uh, roots come from the Gullah area, um, and so there was no need for a dialect coach. That is something that is very familiar to me. What I did listen to was the rhythms and the harmony patterns and the harmonic patterns of the Gullah region and the singers there. Um, it's a different type of singing. But I think it would probably be the precursor to a Bessie Smith, and then Bessie Smith would be the precursor to a Mahalia Jackson. And all of those things were very dear to me. I'm a, a, I actually had interest in being a ethnomusicologist uh, early in my college career. Um, and so those are things that I'm already interested in. And I was very intrigued by the different rhythmic patterns, um, the different style, stylized ways of singing traditional gospel songs. And so, no, I didn't need a, a dialect coach. I just um, pulled from my own experiences and things that I already knew um, so that I could get in touch with the way that Pearl may have spoken. or, or And sometimes it is a challenge. Um, I, I find it a challenge to really stick to the dialogue, um, the, the, the dialect, I should say, um, because I don't think it's a dialect per se. I just think it's a mixed, um, it's like mixed information. Some of the sentences came in full and some of them came in broken, but it's the same ideas. And you understand what Pearl is saying, whether it's, proper English or not. Um, so, no, there was no dialect coach needed. Uh, Teresa, how about you? Well, no, I didn't work with a coach either. I really enjoy working with dialects. It's something that, that I find to be a lot of fun. And what I chose to do for this character, because of the time period and because of where she comes from, she comes from a wealthy uh, family in New York. I was aiming for something sort of like a um, – uh, sort of the way Catherine Hepburn spoke in, in her movies 
in the you know in, during her heyday, and um, and yeah. then I tempered that a little bit because it was a little too uh, a little too posh for me. I thought so. I, then I figured, well, Susanna has spent so much time in the south. I let, I, I started at Catherine Hepburn, and then I just leaned a little bit southward and uh, and went from there. Yeah, there was a whole dialect. I think they called it uh, Mid-Atlantic or Middle-Atlantic or... Yeah, I think they called it Mid-Atlantic or Trans-Atlantic. Exactly. That's that's where I I started, and then I let myself lean toward the Southern a little bit. Absolutely, absolutely. So, Ralph, how did your character see Susanna? You know, I think in the beginning, um, Pearl has a very one-sided view of white people in general, um, because her parents were slaves, um, she views white people in one way only. And when she meets Susanna, she gets to see that, you know, that it's not a general wash of white people, um, that, peop- that that she begins to take people on an as-person, you know, a, a, a one-person basis. You know, as, as she meets people, she begins to accept them for what they are. Um, but in the very beginning, I think uh, Pearl's background makes her view white people as the people who are privileged, the people who have money, the people who have freedom, the people who have everything that she doesn't have. And, um, you know, a a child of a slave is going to see the world differently than a child of free people um, and a child that that grew up in the South. And, and, And even as Pearl, you know, grew up on an island, she didn't just grow up in the, the South in America, she grew up on a, an isolated part of the South where there was, there was a whole style of living, a way of living, um, the way they cooked, the way they sang, the way they dressed. Um, and, and so white people were viewed as those that were above. And she makes a journey to understand that we are all equal. I think the song um, near the end of the play, Six Feet of Earth, really brings um, it full circle for Pearl. She realized we're all the same, and what really um, makes the common denominator is our mortality, and that we all have to die one day. And you know that grief and that sorrow and that family tie makes us all one and all the same. And so that's Pearl's journey. And so she views Susanna first as someone who maybe she could get something from, and maybe someone who um, wants something from her. But as the, their relationship grows, she realizes that. It's not about that, that it's really about the relationship and about them growing together and learning each other, and that there are two women who have wants and desires and needs, and that they um that there's so many commonalities that the differences are minimal so yeah that's I think that's Pearl's view of Susanna mm-hmm. okay, I'll flip it around so Teresa, how does your character see Pearl? Well, I think you know. Susanna is presented as an extremely ambitious person. So she, it, it, when we first meet her, she's very focused on on pursuing her goals, on, on finding music, and she really wants to find a, an old folk song um, that has come over on the slave ships from Africa, you know, be great for her career. But we also learn about her that she has um, different attitudes towards uh, racial, racial relations than, than most white people of her time and, and is willing to... Um, to, to try to see people equally. Unfortunately, I think she doesn't at the beginning realize the ways in which um, her paternalism is showing. 
you know, she's still at the beginning. First of all, she sort of treats Pearl at the very beginning kind of like a commodity. You know, she's looking for songs and that's that. As she begins to see that Pearl really has something special um, and they warm up to one another a little bit, you do still see some ignorance on Susanna's part um, in terms of – you know, not not being aware of her white privilege is the way we would say it today. You know, um, that, that she that that she she makes certain assumptions and uh, and behaves in certain ways that that Pearl kind of stops her up on and says, "Hey, hey, what? You know, why can't you? Why shouldn't you at least call me Miss Johnson instead of calling me Pearl? You know, and things like that." And so that's a wonderful part of the journey for Susanna, I think, is is what she learns about about how far she has yet to come in order to really. Um, to treat an African American person as as an equal, um, but uh, so at the beginning, yeah, she's pearl the commodity like all the other singers that she's met. But she quickly, I think, sees something very special in Pearl. That not only in that she's a great singer and, and might have a trove of old songs that haven't been recorded before, but she's also um, like Susanna herself. She's also very strong and strong willed and um, and self-reliant, and they, they both share these qualities, and I think very quickly Su- Susanna learns to admire that in Pearl, as much as it can be irritating sometimes. Um, I think Susanna learns very quickly to admire that, and that's part of the reason why uh, the relationship continues in the way that it does and, and develops in the way that it does. Absolutely. Okay, so I'm going to put you all on the spot here uh if you can, and you don't have to, but it would be great if you could just sing just a little bit of Little Sally Walker. <laughs> <laughs> that was I've never tried it on the phone before. <laughs> That's funny. Just, just a little. So, you want to okay, start, so, Roz, and I'll join in? Okay. Yes, yes. We'll, sure. that's, what, that's what we'll do. Okay. So okay. here's the thing. Here's the way it's set up. Little uh Pearl has her own version of Little Sally Walker that she's learned from her mom and her grandmother, and and Susanna has her own version. So I'm going to start, and then, you know, I guess Susanna will join in. So it's, okay, here we go. Okay. Little Sally Walker sitting on a saucer. Rise, Sally, rise. Wipe your weeping eyes. Put your hands on your hips. And let and your backbone slip. Now shake it to the east, shake it to the west, shake it to the one that you love the best. I'm sure that was horrible because it's on the phone. Yeah, well, you know, it just goes to show you how much how much the visual cues help when you're when you're working with somebody musically. It's fantastic. Yeah, it was really, it was really a pleasure to see it uh, live on stage. It was awesome. So I'm going to switch gears here and talk a little bit about you know the sexism and uh, some of the the issues that they had back then. Uh, things are su- supposedly a lot better for women these days in the 21st century. But in, re- in researching your roles, I mean, what are some of the more I guess sexist attitudes uh, you came across from the 30s? I'll, I'll start re- with you, Teresa. Well, I mean, there's a there's a key sort of uh, relationship with it with an offstage character that my that Susanna has, and he's he's uh, someone she went to college with, and someone who is um, the assistant to the governor of Texas. So he's you know made some achievements in his life, and who clearly has treated her from the beginning with with some scorn for her um, 
her interest in, in making women equal to men and things like that. And it treats her um, in a condescending way and also, um, you know, tries to tries to limit their interactions to mostly the sexual, you know, he has sexual comments for her and flirtations and things like that, when really she's just trying to get her job done. And um, and I, I guess what it's it, it sad to say is uh, how how common that kind of behavior still is from men. And, and now I, I say this with great appreciation for the many, many enlightened men I have the pleasure of knowing, but... Um, but but even in this day and age, I've experienced a lot of the same thing, and I know I'm, I know I'm not alone in that. Um, so so that's sort of the the key thing there is is that sort of that sort of sexualized condescension um, that that I find very irritating when it, when it does come around. On the other hand, Susanna also experiences. Um, a more old-fashioned kind of um, a putting down. Uh, you know, she has a line that says something like, um, uh, where I come from, if a woman can cook, they don't let her do anything but cook. So, yeah. you know, that sort of thing. She wants to have more, and I think we've gotten past that to to a large extent. Um, and, of course, you know, uh, there were men in her career path who who took credit for things that she did, and she wasn't able to have the successes that she deserved because of things like that. And um, I like to think that that happens a lot less nowadays, but I think we all know we're not all the way there yet, you know? Yeah, Roz, what's your take on that? I'm sorry, were you asking Roz? No, yeah, yeah. So, Roz, I mean, uh, what's your take on that, on some of the attitudes and how things have changed or haven't changed over the years for women? Yep, I think she might have. Did we lose her? Yeah, we might have lost her. Okay, Ron, you're back. Sorry. Yeah, somehow you got muted. Yeah, I was going to ask Ron. Yeah, what's your take on that? On what Teresa was saying about the attitudes on women back in the '30s? You know, it's interesting. I think I had to take Pearl's perspective in that not much has changed. I visited. prisons when I was, um, I think it was maybe like 2000, and um, I found that most of the women who were in prison had committed a crime based on a wrong that was done to them. They were molested, um, their child was threatened, they were trying to feed their family, um, and I find that because of Pearl's story, you know, she has basically um, castrated a man um, who was, it's not spelled out, but it's clear that he violated her daughter. So I find that through Pearl's eyes, not much has changed for women. Um, You can go to any women's prison today, and there'll be the same kinds of women in prison. When I visited uh, uh, 17 years ago, the women that were in prison, they looked like my mother, they looked like me, they looked like my grandmother, and they all were in there because, excuse me, somebody hurt them. Um, and so I look at it and say, oh, not much has changed. Um, a woman can still, you know, go to jail for protecting her family. Um, yeah. There's some other, you know, there's some other differences. Uh, you know, of course, we can vote now. There's a lot more things. But there's some things that are really, that haven't moved. And it, it saddens me that things haven't moved in the way that, you know, women are still viewed as the weaker sex. 
the less um, uh, intelligent sex, um, the emotional to a fault so that they can't make decisions. Even Hillary Clinton, who is, you know, a presidential candidate, is still uh, being scrutinized for her innate feminine qualities. She's a woman. She can't help that. You know what I mean? It doesn't change her intelligence. It doesn't change her uh, competence. Um, and so, so in, in that way, it kind of like makes me, it, it's stifling that so many things haven't changed. Absolutely, we've made great strides. But what really is uh, dawned on me is that some people don't realize the strides we've made. And they find them, um, they're resentful of the progress that women have made. And so that's my, I think that's my take on the, the issues and the differences or not, or the lack of differences, I should say. All right. Okay. So I'm going to switch gears. So we're coming down to about a couple minutes left here. So, um, Teresa, I guess I'll start with you. So what were some of the challenges in rehearsing such a, a long play with just two people? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Interestingly for me, this is the fourth play I've done since I came back after having children. And it was the one with the longest rehearsal week. We had a 38-hour rehearsal week, which is allowed by what was allowed by equity. And um, and it's only the two of us, so so we're all, we're both called all the time. You know, there's never any break from it. So my my first challenge was primarily just you know that that I got kind of exhausted, and I didn't have uh, as much time as I wanted outside of rehearsal. To, to do the work that I like to do when I'm preparing a role. Um, and that's, you know, that has to do with having small children and, and uh, running a, a separate business uh, that is my, you know, that supports my acting. And, um, and so that's, that was frustrating. The, 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 the frustrating part of it was, was my life balance. You know, I'm trying to negotiate now how to keep my photography career and raise my children and do theatrical projects. And, um, this one was the most challenging in terms of that, just because it was a a, a more intense schedule. Um, I found that uh, you know, so I had to negotiate that the best that I could. But in the room, uh, you know, working with Roz has been so great, and we we had sort of an immediate click with one another. And uh, Sandra Holloway is just the, one of the warmest people I've ever met, and she did such a great job guiding us through this that. Um, that that I, I, there were no no huge obstacles that I can that I can mention. I you know we had some little questions to answer along the way, but I think we we found the way through together, and and it was really a wonderful experience. Yeah, Rob, what were some of the challenges for you? You know, I'm used to the schedule. I, I kind of never stopped. I didn't take a break. Um, and I look at you know Teresa, and I'm just so enamored because you know my sons are now 16 and and almost 14, and um, I remember them being small and you know dragging them everywhere with me, <laughs> and I didn't get a I didn't take a break, and so I'm used to the schedule. Um, I understand, but and and I've done a one person show before, so I kind of understand what that means. Um, but, you know, here's the thing. This is an ensemble. A one-person show, you're responsible for you. You've got to be on your lines. You've got to know your songs, and you're done. But when it's two people, you have to be caring and um, supportive of your cast member. It doesn't work. If I'm out, it doesn't work. If Teresa's out, it doesn't work. So it really it reinforces the teamwork of it all. Um, I've known Sandra Holloway since I was probably about 14 years old. So I really trusted her implicitly. Um, I was looking forward to a new experience, uh, something told through a woman's eyes, 
such a, uh, a plus for me. Also, um, I, you know, the, the challenge for me, I think, was really not judging my character. It wasn't about the schedule. It was, so, it was really about the actual character and not judging her, not judging Pearl, not assuming, oh, she's only tough. Oh, she's only uh, broken. Oh, she's only this or she's only that. She's so multifaceted. And to learn about Susanna, who comes from a completely different culture, and understand and appreciate what she feels has been killed off from her culture and that she's connected to that. And um, so that, that was the challenge, to really, like, dig into the text and find what's not on the page. I find a lot of times, you know, we get a script and, we, you know, we, we, we say the lines and we do that. But what's not on the page? What's the subtext? What is, you know, so that, those are the challenges, and they're fun challenges. They're not, you know, things that make me, you know, um, uh, upset about it or anything. It's just a wonderful experience. And Teresa is just such a, a craft woman um, that it makes me step up my game even more, and I want to spar with her, and I want to be able to, you know, have that tennis match. Some, uh, one of my friends mentioned that opening night. Oh, it's a tennis match, and it's great. So uh-huh. if you if they can see that, I think that's that. I think that we've accomplished our goal, and that we can grow through a run. Um, you know, we have five weeks to to grow this story and to really flesh it out. So the challenge is to make it fresh and new every night and to not get locked into what I believe about things, to, to discover. That's my challenge, to discover. So, yeah, yeah, it's a great experience. Exactly, exactly. I guess we have time for one more question. And, Teresa, I'll start with you. Uh, this is, uh, I guess, your marketing elevator pitch. And tell everybody out there why they should go see the show. Oh, well, the the greatest thing I can say about it is that all these issues sound so serious, but it's wildly entertaining. There is, there are so many different types of songs that we sing, and there's humor, and there's pathos, and there's a relationship between these two women that I think is something that a lot of audiences are hungering for. But it's just fun. You know, there's a lot to enjoy in it. That's what I have to say. And Ron? It's good. <laughs> um, that's why you come, because it's good. No, here's my thing. You get to see a play the way that it's supposed to be done, without a lot of bells and whistles, without a lot of production value, two actors with their chops bringing what they bring to the stage, set changes that take a minute, so soak in what you just saw, absorb that, and get ready for the next scene, lights. Um, you know, it's theater. Is what it is, and it's what I was trained on, and it's my foundation. And if you want to see a play that's not Disneyed up, and I, I'm no no offense to Disney at all, but I mean that's not uh, overproduced, and you see the real raw talent of actors and how we bring what we bring to the stage, and we make the story come alive. That's reason enough. Oh, and Teresa can Woo. really sing. Oh, and, and oh, Roz, Roz's voice is worth the price of admission. That's my tagline. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, ladies, it's just been a a real, a real pleasure, and I just uh, say break legs for the rest of the run. Thank thank you so much. Thanks so much for having us. Absolutely. Have a blessed night. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. And folks. And I just want to leave you with this thought of doing something for your career. 
every day and breaking a leg. And we will finish up with two important commercial messages. Night. Hey, federal employees, what would you do with $1 million? Your wishful thinking can become a reality. We're Fed Choice, and we're here to help you achieve your million-dollar dreams, from saving you money on a loan to helping you save for retirement. Visit us online at fedchoice.org and use the keyword inside. Fed Choice Federal Credit Union, an official sponsor of the Inside Acting Radio Show. Fed Choice Federal Credit Union, federally insured by NCUA. Looking for a positive, helpful partner for buying or selling a home in Maryland? Portia Bagley is a trusted resource for answers about the process. Portia offers innovative marketing strategies, expertise about neighborhood features, targeted home searches, strong negotiation skills, and support through the closing and beyond. Ready to buy or sell? Contact her at www.portiabagley.com buyandsellhomes.com or give her a call at 202-656-7604.